Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. Hey, this is Ted. Hey, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. And we've got a very special episode for you today. Um, we know that our last couple episodes on German reunification have been fairly in-depth, diving into the details about the political and economic aspects of that process. So just to break it up a little bit, and before we conclude the series next week with an epilogue on the battles over the memory of East Germany, this week we wanted to bring in a first-hand account of that time during uh, reunification. And so we had the really wonderful opportunity to interview Victor Grossmann, an American journalist who has been based in East Germany since he defected to there from the U.S. Army in the early 1950s. He has a really fascinating story and great perspectives on the political history in East Germany. So I think you'll really like to hear what he has to say about life in the DDR, during the transition, and up until today. That's right. In addition to thanking our wonderful producer, Isaac. Yep, thanks, Isaac. We have another special thanks this week that goes out to our friend Tom of The Left Berlin, who kindly set up a video recording of this interview. We will post clips of that to our Twitter page. Our Twitter is at spaßbremse underscore pod, S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E. -S -S -E. I don't know if people need that spelling. So keep an eye out for that. If you've been enjoying the episode so far, please also subscribe on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. And if you'd like, we would appreciate if you leave us a review. Yeah, that would be great. And also, if you can, we'd love if you could share with your friends and family. Um, we've gotten some really great feedback in our first month of existence, so we really appreciate that. And with only six weeks to go until the German federal election, we want to make sure we reach as many as people as possible to kind of share our perspective on German politics with people. And after our reunification episode, we've got an episode coming up on Chancellor Merkel, Angie herself, Germany's dear leader for nearly two decades. So that should be a really good one, especially to people who are maybe you know familiar but not, not experts on German politics. We think you'll all enjoy that. Yeah, so make sure to follow our Twitter at spaßbremse underscore pod. And that's it. All right, on to Victor Grossmann. Victor, welcome. Thank you so much for welcome. coming on our podcast, Spaßbremse. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're super excited to have you here. Um, and so this is part of our series that we've been doing about the process of German reunification and the various issues with that and also trying to correct some of these narratives that you might hear a lot about reunification today that aren't necessarily a great representation of the actual history. And so we thought no one better you know, who, than someone who lived through it and, and could really comment on that. And so first we talked about the political process of the fall of the DDR, its incorporation into the West. We then went on to discuss the economic components, the privatizations, the Troihand, and so on. 
And so now what we really want to do is also look at some of these cultural and political components of both, you know, maybe your experience in the East, how it might differ from portrayals of it in media today, um, and also just how you perceived the process and how you perceive these ongoing struggles over the memory of the East today. First, to start us off, I was hoping you could give an overview of your background. How did you end up living in the DDR? Well, I was born in New York and grew up in the late 1930s when New York was a left-wing center for many, many people. And I grew up in a left-wing atmosphere and I was a leftist, I was what they called a red diaper baby, basically. <laughs> and so in high school too, I gravitated to the left uh, which was largely communist, although there were different groups of different. But I, I gravitated to that group. And when I got to Harvard College, which was in 1945, I also found kindred spirits and became an active leftist in our little secret communist group because we were afraid of being known for, for fear of never getting a job. In any case, I graduated in 1949. I took a job at the, at the suggestion of the, of the Communist Party, uh, not in an academic career or something, but as a worker. And I worked in the city of Buffalo until the Korea War came along and I got drafted. And when you were drafted, you had to sign that you were never a member of any of the 120 different organizations that they listed, most of them long gone. <laughs> Uh, a few of them far right, but almost all of them left. And I had been in about a dozen of them, and I was still in about three or four. But if you were in any, there was a law which said you had to register as a foreign agent. And if you didn't register, you could be jailed up to, you could be fined up to 10,000 and jailed up to five years for every day you didn't register. In other words, in a week, that's 35 years. <laughs> in two weeks, it's 70 years. And the, the law was already about six months old. So when I saw this list, I was frightened to admit I had been in any of them. And I figured I didn't know what to do. But in the end, I signed in the hopes that for two years, they wouldn't check up on me. I had great luck. I was not sent to Korea. I was sent to Bavaria in Germany. And... I had only about five, six months left, they did check up on me. They said, you signed, but you were in one, two, three, four, five, six. Report on next Monday to the military judge in Nuremberg, which was the next big city. I said, my God, there was a possible punishment again of 10,005 years just for having lied. I said, I'm not going to serve five years in prison. I'm taking off. And I did. I decided then I'm deserting. It's, it, it's a tough decision, but it's better than spending years in prison. I found out the only place to, to, that I could find that seemed pretty sure was the borderline between the U.S. and the Soviet zone in Austria, which was the Danube River, which I swam across and ended up with the Soviets, who didn't send me to the Soviet Union, but sent me to East Germany, to the GDR which is where I landed and where I stayed basically till today. What an incredible story. <laughs> that is 
I can't imagine swimming across to uh, <laughs> escape. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is a bit why we wanted your perspective on this, is I think you can bring something to this conversation that uh, probably you won't get a lot elsewhere. So yeah, thanks again for coming. Right, so you arrive on your first day in the GDR. Were you gonna get a job as a worker, continue working what you did in Buffalo, or what was your plan at that point after deserting? Well, my first two months were sequestered in a special house by the Soviets, which were very, very nice, but but very cut off. But then after two months, I was sent to this town in the south where all deserters from Western armies were sent. And I spent two years there. At first, I worked in a factory carrying lumber, heavy job. Were there the, quite a few deserters from the west? Because the narrative is always about moving east to west, never west to east. Not an awful lot. But there are always about 30 to 40 men. This changed because some could not adjust and went back. This was before the war went up, went back. Uh, I think the tendency was if they came with a, a woman friend or found one, they tended to settle and stay here. If they were alone and couldn't speak German, etc., they did, found it hard to adjust. But uh, a clubhouse was opened up for the 30 or 40 of us, by the way, about half Americans and then British, French, and other nationalities. For half a year, I was the cultural director, directing m matches, uh, chess, and ping pong, and billiards, etc. But then they set up a special course for all of us to learn a trade, and a one-year special course as an apprentice, and you had a choice of four trades, machinist, painter and I took lathe operator and learned that in one year, in this one year course. I'm still amazed that I learned that because I'm a technical idiot otherwise. But luckily for the economy of the GDR at the time perhaps, I never worked as a lathe operator. I got the chance instead to go to Leipzig to the university and had a four year course in journalism, which was very, very interesting because I could compare things with Harvard as a student in both, four years students in both. Of course, there are many differences. Then I went to move to Berlin and had various jobs, but ended up as a freelance journalist and speaker, writing and speaking almost only about the United States because people were curious and from an American, they tended to, to listen. Uh, I never lost my American accent, <laughs> very, very apparent. So that, which meant that I got around, I traveled through the whole country, almost every corner of the GDR, meeting all different kinds of students, pupils, teachers, workers, everything. Also scientists, because I gave a special course as a teacher of English, uh, a, a conversation course for scientists who had to improve their English for international conferences so that I got to know the situation here pretty well. Right, so I think that, that leads really well to these sort of main, main thrust of the, the interview that we want to get to, and that ties into to your experience in the DDR and both comparing that to the West, where you know, where you lived before, of course, and also to how the DDR was portrayed in the West, both then and today. You know, the stories you hear now are sort of like everybody was waiting in line for food all the time. Uh, everyone was living in a gray giant apartment block, was miserable. It was kind of a cultural wasteland. 
And I would guess that your experience might differ a bit from that. So I would be really curious to hear what you thought of it. Well, first of all, as far as living, at first I lived in a one-room sub-let uh, sub with a family. I, was, I never mastered these cold ovens to heat my room so that I froze until I had the amazing, not amazing, but the great, great luck of meeting my girlfriend who later became my wife. And she also had a single room, but a nice warm one. <laughs> so I spent evenings there in the warm one with her. Um, and then when I moved to Berlin, for the first year I had to live as also sublet with a, with a woman uh, who rented a room. Then I got a, a, an apartment so that my wife and, and my first of two sons could move from Leipzig to Berlin. But it was it was a new apartment, but not so fancy. It was still this cold heating. You had to heat. But then by after about two, three years, I was lucky and swapped with two other families and got a, a, a modern apartment. Because gradually, starting with the end of the 50s and then more and more the 60s building up, there was a huge housing program. The aim was to have, by 1990, every family having an apartment of their own with regular modern sanitation, which was pretty rare back in when I first arrived, and, uh, and central heating and such. But I was lucky in 61 I got such an apartment. Of, uh, I wouldn't have gotten it with one son because it was a three-room apartment, but my wife was pregnant, <laughs> so we were four of us. <laughs> so they, I got the apartment. Uh, in general, until you got a, a, an apartment, it was not easy because it was pretty old-fashioned and so forth, a lot of it. But the, it's, it changed remarkably in more and more and more new building as the years went by. Whole huge cities, even, and sections. Uh, so that I think by 1990, about two million new homes had been built uh, in those last few years. Uh, that was one point. As far as waiting online, oh yeah, we did a lot of waiting online. Uh, it, what it meant was, most frequently you waited online when there was something like fresh cherries, fresh tomatoes, fresh berries, or uh, something like that. Or something which was very rare, uh, s southern fruits, even oranges were very rare. There, were, there was lots of fruit of the kind that grew there, or grew here. Apples, pears, peaches, cherries. But bananas were almost in, unknown. So that's a stereotype that's true, because you hear that one a lot. <laughs> the banana thing is a, is a very famous... Uh, it was famous thing. because bananas were, were sort of a symbol of what we didn't have. Right. But we also didn't have oranges very much. And... Uh, tropical fruits, kiwis and papaya, those were pretty well unknown. But once in a while you got a big, big shipment from Bulgaria, Romania, wonderful melons and tomatoes and so forth. And then there was waiting online to get it. However, the staples, which you need every day, the, you didn't really wait online for such. Uh, once There was always something was short, because Supply could never keep up with demand in, in the GDR. People, because 
Rent costs almost nothing. Yeah. About a tenth of your pay. I paid 114 marks for my three-room modern apartment from 1961 when I moved in right up to 1990. It never increased. And that was about a tenth of my pay. And this was true of most people. Not only that, transportation was almost for nothing. 20 pfennigs, it was nothing. And train, tra train travel was so cheap that it was hardly mentioning. Also, of course, medical care was completely covered. Dental care, vision, eyeglass, everything was paid. You never paid a penny. You never paid a penny for prescribed drugs. You never paid a penny for education uh, up to graduate school level. In fact, you got a scholarship. So as a student, for example, I got enough. By the way, I got a little more because I was a foreign student. You were given more because you didn't have the same facilities as with family. But my wife had a, a, not a very well-paying job. She was then still a stenotypist. But uh, so that we couldn't, we couldn't take any big, per, make any big purchases. But we had enough to go to the movies, to go to the theater once in a while, to go to the opera, which was all extremely cheap. Which meant that as soon as we started, I, I started working. Like an awful lot of GDR people, you had enough money in your pocket. The problem was to find the things you wanted, which were as a, the, the, the desirables. The staples were always there, uh, with an exception here. Once in a while, this was short or that was short. You, you, there were countless jokes about that. Cars were hard to get. You had to wait a long time to get a new car. You could get a used car easily, but a, uh, which was more expensive than a new one. Really? <laughs> but yeah, a new car, you had to wait a long time. For the first one, once you had one, you could keep trading and get keep keep on. But um, but people t had, uh, especially in the later years, most people had money, but a fancy, fancy or f the latest fashion or the latest equipment. That was hard to get because it was there was more demand than supply. This was always a problem. But I would repeat what people in Western countries perhaps didn't realize, that everyone basically had enough to get along. Uh, uh, one important thing, especially today, evictions were illegal. You could not be evicted in the worst of circumstances if you refused to pay rent for, for, for years. You could be put out of your apartment, but not until another place was found for you. Mm. Nobody was thrown onto the street. So this was an important uh, difference from today in in the States, where this is a big problem yeah. now, or other countries, or today here. You hear, see in, it here in, as well. It's in, not in as bad. But, yeah. There were no evictions, and therefore nobody in the, sleeping in the street and nobody begging. I never saw a beggar. So that these were some of the differences. It's great to hear a real life perspective of these things. And you know, some of some of the stereotypes are true, of course, but you mentioned in some ways the in a lot of ways, the security and, and quality of life was was something to be envied, um, especially from the perspective of of a lot of people on the more precarious side of life today. What it also meant was uh, half a year I worked in a factory, but later I visited, I spoke at factories and visited them, talked with people. This meant 
a big difference from the work I knew from Buffalo, both positive and negative, you might say. People were not afraid of losing their jobs, mm. which meant that you were not afraid of the foreman. Mm. And you were not under constant, constant pressure to show that you're working hard. Therefore, to, to my surprise, in the factory where I worked, people would go, take off during work to go to the dentist or, uh, in the fact, or, the, or the doctor. Every factory of any size had a little shop. And this was usually favored for workers better than what you'd get outside, which meant that they'd get the first cherries and the, fir and the first fresh tomatoes. And if lemons were short, they'd get the first lemons. Uh, or the rarely bananas, which meant that if you'd hear, oh, in, in, your, in your work team, you'd hear, oh, they have cherries. E either you'd take off and get cherries or you'd delegate one person to get for everybody. This was perhaps not so good for production, but it was good for your state of mind in a way uh, that you were not afraid at your job. In fact, there was a saying after unification, among workers, which said, before the change, if you were smart, you wouldn't say anything too bad about the, about the government or the party. Better to leave that alone. But you could say whatever you wanted against the foreman or the manager without <laughs> anyone, because you couldn't be fired. Yeah. Now they said it's the other way around. You can say anything you want against the president or the chancellor, but you better not say anything against your foreman. Uh, this is an interesting comparison. It shows a different way of life, basically, for the two. It meant, however, that for the person working in a factory, they didn't have uh, the carrot and the stick. They didn't have the fear of losing a job and of having to work harder, either alone or their, their work team. At the same time, you had less in the general population of people thinking, oh, how I can make a million. Yeah, uh, because nobody made a million, or almost nobody. Yeah. There were a few exceptions, mostly celebrities and s singers and stuff. And uh, and the top management didn't make millions, which meant that nobody knocked themselves out in the hopes of of making a million. But I add again, this meant there was virtually no real poverty. They almost succeeded in, in eliminating poverty. That's interesting. It's yeah. really interesting to hear about this degree of stability that was offered to people that it sounds like people experienced and the unexpected consequences in all aspects of everyday life, like you were saying, with being able to say mean things about your foreman. I think that's kind of a funny <laughs> aspect that I didn't consider. Um, I would actually like to ask kind of a classic question and move into our main theme of reunification. Um, where were you when the wall came down? Could you tell us about that? I was just home, I think, <laughs> doing nothing in particular. Just minding my own business. <laughs> no, I was undoubtedly watching television, uh, I I'm sure. I was always attached to the GDR from the start. Of course, I came as a leftist, and I saw the problems and the hardships, 
and the conflicts and the GDR was always full of constant conflicts and controversy because it was never a, a, a monotone thing. You had people who hated socialism and you had people who loved socialism and you had large stretch of people in the between who changed their views as things went better or worse for them personally. So that you had kinds of, and of course they didn't say, they didn't wear on their sleeve what they believed. So that you had constant cross currents of different views changing and, uh, and making, by the way, culturally for an interesting atmosphere because writers would try to say often what they were critical of. Some of them were very, so critical that they hated the GDR, but couldn't write that and get printed. So they sort of disguised it. Others loved the GDR, but were critical because they saw it going downhill and wanted to put that in their books, also get printed. Well, first of all, it was called a reader country. When you went into a bookshop, books were so cheap, you got a little basket like you do in some uh, supermarkets. You went around and you took a book here and you took a book there and you took a you didn't People didn't look at the price. The only thing they looked at was they were hoping to get some of the most controversial books because they sold out quickest. In fact, often you had to know the salesperson to get them because those books, there were never enough of them so that they kept them under the counter, and that was called bukvar, the stoop goods. They had to stoop down to get them for their friends and their good customers. The same was true of theater. What was the play trying to say? Was it altogether anti? No, then it wouldn't get put on. Was it completely pro and, and covering up all, uh, you know, hurrah? People didn't go. They weren't interested. But there were so many degrees in between and uh, it must be said, some of them got through and some were stopped. They were considered overly critical. This was especially true with films. They were, it was considered, nay, I could say too dangerous, because every critical note, either in a book, a film, or a theater, was immediately picked up in West Germany and built up on in television coming back into the East and trying to make it seem worse than it, to magnify it. And this meant that the people in the, in the GDR, and there was a, a censorship of, of film and, uh, well, there's a censorship in every country because you need a lot of money to make a film. But um, the times changed over the years. It were, it were much greater freedom to get in critical stuff. And then things happened in the world, uh, like in Hungary, events in Hungary, and they got frightened up above that things are getting too rebellious, and they tightened the screws. In Hungary, do you mean 1956, or them opening the 56, border with Austria? Okay, 1956. Okay, gotcha. And then things got easier with under the when Khrushchev was in the Soviet Union, and they got eased up here too, because it was a reflection of that. When Khrushchev was thrown out in 1964, and Brezhnev came in, this meant screws were tightened. Brezhnev was obviously putting pressure on not to let things go too far because they were afraid always. GDR was right on the border with West Germany and it was always a, a because the, the propaganda from West Germany on television was so extremely powerful. Uh, powerful, I mean clever. I would say 
80 to 90 percent of the population here watched Western TV. Uh, a, a large number of them watched both. Some watched only Western TV, a lot of people. Uh, there were two groups that didn't that watched only Eastern TV. In the Northeast and the Southeast, you couldn't pick up Western TV for a long time. That was that was around Dresden. They called that uh, the Valley of Blissful Ignorance. I saw a map of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like idiot. Uh, but later <laughs> they put up the antennas higher and higher and higher, and they got that. Too. <laughs> but my my brother-in-law came from down there. Whenever he visited us, the first thing he wanted to see was Western television. Uh, and they was very clever in not saying, oh, you're terrible. They, they had ways of picking up all criticism and using it. And if, if a writer wrote a book which was critical, but meaning it in a positive way or not, he was immediately praised in the West for his criticism and invited there. Hmm. Mm. He applied to get a visit uh, to get a visa to go across. If he got one, which wasn't always the case, when he got over there, they, they'd wine and dine him and praise him and give him a prize or two and sell his books and tell him either to stay in West Germany or otherwise to, to go back, but to be more critical. Mm. And this was true in but not only in cultural field, but in, in uh, for example, in scientific fields. Students studying scientific courses or engineering and so forth. Before the war went, well, before the war went up, they'd go over and they'd, and they'd dig up a, a job to get once they got over to the West. But they were told, first finish your education in the East. Let them pay for it and then come over. Mm -hmm. This was stopped by the wall. Which meant, however, that after 1961, when the war went up, the um, economy improved greatly because all these people were not being siphoned away in the 60s and in the 70s. But by the 1980s, we could see that the economy was going downhill. It was no longer going up. And this meant that of those three groups I mentioned, the very pro-group, usually stayed pretty faithful. The group in the middle, however, which had been changing, they tended to be anti. And of course, the people in leadership, seeing that, got more and more nervous and basically didn't know what to do, especially because they were pretty old by now. And in a couple of cases, maybe a bit senile. But uh, they didn't know what to do, and they couldn't find the right words to speak to people to win them back or to win them over. It moved in stronger and stronger, and to East Germany very strongly because it would come in in, in programs, uh, some in English, they heard it too, but, but mostly in West German programs, which people understood was their own language, and this had more and more effect. And as they say, they used every difficulty, every shortage here to show, see, we've got everything to show them snazzy new cars. There's even Mon Cherie and, 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 and nice candies, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and of course, clothing, the latest fashions. And people, especially young people, whom I spoke to, I told them 
in, because I did all this talking, you know, speaking to people. I said, you know, if there's a changeover to the Western system here, you'll have all the Coca-Cola you want. You'll be able to visit San Francisco and the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But you may not have a job. But I could see in their eyes, and sometimes their words, so what? You get unemployment insurance, maybe it's even more than I'm earning as a job. What the hell? Look at all those other things I'll get. And for young people also, that meant on a Harley-Davidson motorcycle with, uh, with fancy leather clothing and lots of things hanging onto it and uh, really adventure. Even the drug scene, which we didn't have here, there were no drug, no drug problem in the East. That sounded romantic in some ways, you know, interesting. This became part of especially the young people's culture. And you could see this happening. And attempts by people like me to try to, to oppose this didn't get very far. I wrote long, long letters to important people, but they didn't help. And uh, spoke to some of them, it didn't help. You could see it going downhill. And I was very sad to see it go down the hill. And I was uh, always hoping that it could be saved. We didn't really anticipate till the end that it really was over. Well, some people did, some people didn't, but you could see it moving that way. First, the wall went down, and then that one year of, until complete unification, yeah. was a very bitter year for people like me. Mm. Uh, you could see that uh, changes taking place more and more. You bought things on the street for West money, not East money. Uh, the whole atmosphere was changing in that last year. It, it was partly also when the wall went down, of course, people poured over to West Berlin where you got 100 Westmarks, where you could buy anything you want. You know, everybody got 100 Westmarks. <laughs> there were uh, jokes. I saw this cartoon where you see a man with about six kids, and he's going to the bank where you get the money, the hundreds, 100 marks. He said... Don't tell them that you were here with your mother, too. <laughs> and holding in his arms a big tomcat dressed up as a baby. <laughs> to get it. Uh, and this already undermined the whole, the whole psychology here. And that went further and further and further every month and every week until that was in November. Now, the, uh, Hanukkah was thrown out in October, November... Fourth, you had this huge meeting at at Alexander Square, where it was frightening because you had this huge parade, and if they had kept going to the wall at Brandenburg Gate, I don't know how anybody could have stopped them, especially since there was an agreement, no police, and no violence. Uh, I, I was afraid they were going to go straight down, but they didn't. They turned back to Alexander Square, and they heard... Several dozen speakers who were very different. Many of them, like the writer Christoph Wolf and Stefan Heim, who said, We have to change the GDR, but not get rid of it. This is one of the things that we touched on in our earlier episode, so I'm glad you're bringing that up again. Is that there were this, these protests and a lot of dissatisfaction with the regime, but a number of the leaders of the movements and the actual, you know, the sort of 
the ordinary people involved in the movements as well, they wanted a reform to the system, not necessarily a full-scale adoption of Western-style capitalism. At this meeting at Alexander Square and that parade which went before it, for the first time you saw signs which were not prescribed by the, 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 by the party, basically. Sarcastic, often nasty signs against the new head of the government. In a way, it was refreshing to see people with also rhymes and, and puns and jokes and caricatures, which we had never seen. I knew them from the United States, but they hadn't known them. At the same time, I thought to myself, this means they're losing control on top, which is what happened. Because then, what was it, five days later, the wall went down and everybody crossed over. And of course, most people came back and a lot of people really wanted to save the GDR, but to have it changed. But in the, in the next months, between November and end of December, this is when you saw the, the final ultimate change, I would say, when the Western leaders came across, actually illegally often, came across like Cole and Billy Brandt, and they basically said, get rid of the GDR. And not only that, but they came over giving free Coca-Cola and other things, and coal promising blossoming landscapes right. uh, uh, more and more openly as the election of March approached, more and more openly. At first, they didn't say that. They, they talked about basically making the GDR capitalist. But then more and more, you saw the switch unifying. It was that switch which I witnessed in Leipzig in end of November, where the crowds had been, had been protesting and saying, we are the people, visit us folk. And while I was there, in the end of November, I saw the change where groups of men obviously organized, scattered through the crowd, changed the cry to, wir sind ein Volk, we are one people, in other words, unification, so that you could see by the end of November, you could see it changing, and December, then you saw the big, big rally in, in uh, Dresden, towards the end of December, where Cole spoke, and where they pushed the pro-GDR people completely up to the side, and then in January, where the head of the GDR government, Hans Modrow, basically gave up on the chances. And I hoped to the end, but with less and less belief, until the elections in March 1990. And we, we, we had little hopes then. Right, and with the pretty resounding CDU victory then, and then the decision to pursue That's a very right. rapid was, privatization. It was only the party of democratic socialism. That was the revived old socialist unity party. Yeah. It was the only one which said, save the GDR. Mm -hmm. And it got something like 16%. Yeah. That was it. And that was, that, was in, uh, that was in March. The rest of it from March to October was just cleaning up, but really cleaning up. Um, I do want to ask also about the Treuhand. So you talked a little bit about the elections in March and then following the elections, how the East German enterprise 
became privatized, became kind of converted. Um, did you have any firsthand experience with that or any stories from friends who were working at the time and perhaps lost their jobs? How did you, yeah, experience the Treuhand at the time? Well, I was lucky enough to be a freelancer, so nobody could fire me. <laughs> uh, but the people who invited me to speak were no more. Mm. This meant cultural clubs very, of, of different kinds, like teachers' cultural clubs, and, and in general, anyhow, they didn't want to hear an American talk about our USA anymore because now they could go there. Oh, yes, I did have some friends. I knew a woman who was a scientist. Her parents had moved first to the United States in exile. They were Jewish. And then because of the McCarthy era, like me, they came back and had very interesting and important positions here in medical system. And she became a scientist at Charité the biggest hospital. She was forced out of her job, she and her colleagues, although they were doing important research. And they, and, and I know people in academia who were also forced out, the, the deal was that in the social uh, sciences, which includes history, law, languages, uh, Marxism, of course, and philosophy, they were just thrown out. From the scientific fields, they faced a, a, a committee of Westerners who would decide whether they were morally able to continue teaching or not, wow. usually based on the question of whether they had been in the, in the party or not, and whether they had been active in the party or not. And those in judgment were often their rivals mm. in West Germany, in, in scientific fields. So that there were an awful lot of people who were thrown out completely. Scientists, uh, the, the uh, of the ones I taught English to, I had these courses. The top professors, including, for example, a neurosurgeon, they were able to stay at work. But often he was no longer able to stay at at uh, Charité. Mm. He got a job, I think, with a church hospital, and one got a job in Italy. And one got a job in West Germany, but they were thrown out here. And the lower ranks, who may have had a doctorate but nothing more, they just were thrown out of science. And if they were in their 30s, they'd try to find something else. If they were in their 50s, what are they going to start? Very, very difficult. The tendency was to try to sell insurance or something like that. Of course, in the fields of science and academia in general, they often had contact with the Staatssicherheit. They had to, if they wanted to get new equipment, if they wanted to take a trip to West Germany, they always had some contact. This was usually used against them to throw them out. And there were a large number of suicides because of it. Um, the uh, the atmosphere was reminiscent of the atmosphere I had known in the United States in the worst of the McCarthy. Well, no, I left before the worst of the McCarthy period, mm -hmm. but the early McCarthy era years, it was similar here. It was really full of absolute hatred and uh, 
yes, I knew people who were thrown out. But I think all of this really speaks to this sort of broader point, right, especially in the sciences and academia of the, the nature of the economic transition being to like demonstrate the superiority of the West and saying anyone who is in the East, like you're going to be removed from the commanding heights of the economy. Yes. Even if you're, even if you keep a job, you're out of the charité, right? This meant that in every town and city, a large n number of those in any kind of management or administration extending from, from education, police, sewage, any field you want, but especially courts and political. They were thrown out and West Germans came in, usually according to what everybody said, second or third string people who in the West who couldn't really get ahead so well. They got the jobs, they took the jobs here, they got what was known as a bush bonus. A bush bonus meant they got a specially high wage, higher pay or salary, because they had to suffer and, and come over to East Germany. The, the other slang word in connection with this was dimido workers, or dimido managers, you know that? Mm -hmm. Dimido workers, because Dienstag, Mittwoch, Donnerstag, Oh, okay. They came, yeah. they came to start work on Tuesday and they left Thursday evening and the rest of the time they were in Hamburg in their home. Uh, this was not everywhere, but it, was a, a, it happened. And what it meant was that people here who are experts who are working, say, in running the water supply all their lives, their careers, were thrown out they didn't know anything. The West, the Western expert, he, he, he knows how, not you ignorant Easterners. And this was in almost every field, that uh, any field of any elevated position at all, uh, the Easterners were dumb and stupid and, and, and didn't know how to do things effectively, according to the West. And of course, what this resulted in was a giant hatred of the Westerners here a giant hatred, there was a real burning hatred of them. Uh, and of course, add to this the fact that one factory after the other shut down and was sold for a song or, or sold perhaps just for the real estate. Mm -hmm. And the machines taken out and sold and the rest of it left to ruin. Th this meant terrific bitterness, which is still present, not quite so much, of course, after so many 30-odd years, 30 years, but it's still, the remnants are still there, and they're still feeling, and some of it has even been passed on to the younger generation. Yeah. That so, we're, we're, we're the second, uh, you know, we're the second best here, we're the second-class citizens. That still plays a role. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned this, said this perfectly, is... You know, in in our series on reunification, we talk about this sense of like triumphalism of the West and that they needed to show their like total dominance over the East, whether that was the political realm. You mentioned a bunch about the economic realm. And then finally, there's this third like ideological and cultural aspect of it. And I know that you've done some work about the new Humboldt Forum, which is on top of where the old East German Palace de la Republique was. 
And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and then also how that ties into more broadly this idea of of showing of needing to demonstrate that the East was a failure and needing to win the ideological battle as well as the political and the economic one. And then that can be our kind of our way to end here. There was one event which was basically symbolic for many, many East Berliners and for me and my wife very much. That was the so-called Palace of the Republic, Palace de Republique, which was built on the site of the old Kaiser's Palace, which was torn down in 1950. It was a ruin. It was a burnt-out ruin. And it was giant, and it was just more than they could rebuild in those years. And in 1950, there were many more important things to rebuild than, than this completely burnt-out, broken-down palace. So they tore it down. They enraged in the West that the Kaiser's Palace was being turned, this Baroque Palace. But it was. They, they never got over it. And, and, finally, and instead, at the same site, they built the so-called Palace of the Republic, which was a modern building. One corner was for the people's changer, for the legislature. But most of it was reserved for the people of Berlin or wherever. It had a big, big assembly room auditorium, which could be turned to a, used for dancing, for concerts. And I think in a half an hour, they could change the entire seating. It also had a small theater. It had a disco. It had a bowling alley. It had about 10 uh, cafes and bars and, and, and such. It had, best of all, it had two floors, sort of a, a foyer, a lobby, filled with comfortable leather chairs and sofas and chairs. You've probably when, seen this right with the the famous lights, right? Which it now was, are... yes, it was filled with with uh, with lights and there was this Joe Honecker's light shop uh, elect but that didn't bother us so that, that there were lots of lights it was nice. Now they're on sale, right? For like thousands of euros you can buy a replica of them at the Humboldt Forum. So it's one of the more grotesque, uh, grotesque examples here. I saw, I saw this online. It's like, it was either like two thousand or up to like six thousand euros for a replica of the lights of the old Palace de Republic. Yeah, well, uh, maybe they, I think they they did save a lot of it and put it in a cellar someplace. But it meant in this lobby that any time you wanted, you could go in there for free, sit there, chat with your friends, get out of the hot sun or the snow or the rain. Stay as long as you wanted, free. And right in the downtown area. And people loved it. So, after the changeover, the West would not let the Palace of the Republic stay there. This was too much a symbol of the GDR. It was, they decided to get rid of it. And there was one man, especially this, he had sort of the lower nobility, who really put a big fight to collect money to rebuild the Kaiser's palace. So there was a huge campaign which lasted for years to rebuild the Kaiser, to tear down the old palace of the Republic, the one of the GDR, and to rebuild the Kaiser's palace. Well, this broke our hearts. For years we saw, it took them a long time. First of all, they had to get millions and millions and millions to rebuild this palace. As it turned out, they didn't rebuild the palace. They made a, a building which is as huge, giant, monstrous, 
but has the same facade as the old. The front facade is like the old castle. Only the front facade and the tower with a big cross on top. That was replaced. So it's not even an honest replica. Not really. Yeah. Well, the front, the front the facade front. is. But that, I think that's all. And the, the funny thing is that they didn't know what to do with it, really. Uh, they, the idea was library, and then they had the idea of the ethnological exhibition of artifacts from former German colonies in yeah. Africa and Oceania. And this is still the main idea. But, of course, in the meantime, they've gotten into trouble because a lot of these countries now want their stuff back. It's beautiful. That, yeah. It's very beautiful masks and bronzes and yeah. even a boat, a, a fishing boat. 50, uh, they want it back. And uh, nobody really knows how, who belongs what to, to what belongs to whom. And they're fighting it over it. Uh, they're going to make some kind of compromise. And now because... The resentment in East Berlin of the destruction of the Palace's Republic remains so much in people's hearts that they're now having a cafe on top and two restaurants and a little theater and a cinema and changing exhibits. One little exhibit even showing the Palace of the Republic. Mm. Uh, it's a sort of a compromise. But nevertheless, I find that it's a symbol that... Everything done, made in the GDR, because it was socialist, has to be erased yeah. and replaced in this case, especially with a real reversal to the old days of the kings and kaisers. Yeah, it's a bit too on the nose, right? Taking down the yeah. the, the, the and, Eastern and, Palace and putting in a, a monument to the, the Prussian king and colonialism. And it's a horror. I think most people agree it's a horror. It's so big and ugly. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people say, including me, they would have loved also to get rid of the TV tower as a symbol of the GDR, but it's too damn big. <laughs> and, and, and it's too well known and it's too prominent. So they didn't dare to try and tear that down. Instead, as a, uh, as a halfway measure, they want to build skyscrapers all around it so that you can't cover up the top part, that's too big. Yeah. But you can prevent people from seeing it from any place to, you know, it, you can see it from far away, from miles around in Berlin. And but, cover the whole base with shopping malls too, yeah, to show who really yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it'll It looks as if it'll be pretty well surrounded by big, big buildings. But, um, but they couldn't get rid of it completely. However, other landmarks, they've tried to get rid of them if they could. There's some of them, beautiful opera house in Dresden, beautiful concert hall in Leipzig. They rebuilt cathedrals and concert hall in Berlin. They couldn't get rid of them, but they sort of took them over. Yeah. And that's the difference. Oh, well, that's, that's really interesting. And I think, yeah, I mean, thanks so much for that. That's fascinating perspective that uh, we could never have gotten just in our own our own research so I really appreciate you coming on Michelle do you have anything else that's it for me thank you okay. so much Victor yeah um, but, but before we go um, where can people find your writing or, or what kind of um, yes. you're still involved in the the journalism space right yes I'm since I lost my wife especially which is already quite a few years ago 
I've done more writing than ever before, although I wrote then too. But I wrote most recently a book about my life in the GDR. I wrote an autobiography earlier, which tells about my childhood in the United States, college, the army. This newer one starts with my arrival in the GDR and tells of the development of the rise and fall of the GDR, because there was a definite rise up better and better for many years before it started going downhill. And this also relates to the, to the questions now burning among many, many millions of people, especially young people. I hear it all the time in discussions about the uh, uh, Sanders campaign, who raised the question, socialism? Yes or no? He said he's for socialism. What kind of socialism? These discussions are, are, are very uh, relevant today, especially among young readers, and I try to examine the good parts in the, in the GDR, socialism, the bad parts, what I think we should adopt and what we shouldn't. My main point is we can never break out of the, the approaching menace of ecological and reactionary and military without getting rid of the people who are most guilty of it, and those are the billionaires. But uh, this is all in this book. And uh, I've tried, however, not to be overly earnest. I I have lots of jokes in there Mm -hmm. and keep it personal. And it's called A Socialist Defector from Harvard to Karl Marx, LA. Well, great. We'll, uh, We'll link to that in the show notes. And in addition, about every month, I send out an English language bulletin about developments in Germany, usually about three computer pages, telling about recent developments from my point of view and trying to keep people up with what's happening, So, uh, which, which people can get if they'd like from my email address. Okay. Yeah, I've read the Berlin Bulletin, actually, and the leftberlin.com sends that out with the newsletter as well. It's a great overview. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there's a good overview, uh, sorry, a big overlap between our listeners at Spassbremse and, and your bulletin. So, yeah, we'll definitely share that with right. listeners that might not have come across it yet, because as Michelle said, it's a super great resource. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Victor Grossman, thank you so much for coming on. Okay. Spassbremse is hosted by Ted and Michelle and produced by Isaac Werman, this week with special help from Tom Wills. Check out the show notes for things referenced in this episode, including Victor's memoir and his Berlin Bulletin on theleftberlin.com. You can listen to more episodes of Spaßbremse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most other podcast platforms, or wherever you are listening right now. Subscribe to be notified each week when our new episode drops, And if you like what you're hearing on the show, feel free to give us a rating, leave a review, or share with other people who you think could use a little Spaßbremse in their life. You can also find updates about Spaßbremse on Twitter, at Spaßbremse, that's S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore pod. Thanks for listening.